You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Okay, so chapter 9. Now we're at chapter 9. And uh, he says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship, also an earthly sanctuary. And, and this is the sanctuary he's talking about. Um, he says, A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. Now, now he's going to go into explaining it. And I'm going to just briefly make some points. If, if you want really detail, we have detailed in, in the book that John and I wrote about the book of, of Hebrews, how everything symbolizes and how it works and how it, it was repeated again in the, in, in Herod's temple and Solomon's temple. Um, and then again, how it all applies to us now with the church and Jesus. But I'll, I'll, I'll give a brief overview of it. Um, so this, this tent, you know, it's made of white linen. It's a big square, like a domino, kind of like this table I'm at. And when you would come in a doorway, there's only one doorway from the east. And he says, the first thing you find was the lampstand, where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. So the first area is just called the holy place and, and, there's, and, and actually, you know, the holy place is in the inner sanctuary and, uh, there, there's actually a perimeter around that even and, and to protect it and to, to be the gate. Now, later on in the, in the New Testament, we'd have the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Jews, and then the court of the Levites or the, the priests. And of course, we are as Christians, the priest, and he makes that argument here. And of course, Peter makes, uh, picks that up and talks about us being a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So he says, he says, when you walk into this holy this holy area, um, you see the lampstand. The lampstand, that's the menorah, the seven, uh, candle lampstand. That's the, represents the, the Holy Spirit. And then on the other side was the consecrated bread or the, the, and of course, Jesus is the bread of life. And so you have Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the holy room. Actually, to even get into that holy room, you had to go through the outer court, which the first thing was the bronze altar for sacrifice. So you have to make a sacrifice first. And then the next thing is the bronze, uh, I believe it was called a lavar. It's where you washed. And of course that, the washing with water, purifying yourself. Of course, we understand and we know that that is symbolic of baptism. So the sacrifice that was made, that's Jesus' sacrifice. But, it, but to even get to the holy room, you'd, you would have to make a sacrifice. So the priest would make a sacrifice and then would wash, ceremonially wash to be cleansed, right? And then you go in the holy place and there you've got the bread and you've got the candles, which represent the spirit of God, right? And then he says, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, right? And this, he says, um, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered Ark of the Covenant, right? This is the most holy or the holy of holies. And there's a curtain separating it from the other holy room. And of course, that that's the curtain that we always read about when Jesus died, ripped and opened up because that was the curtain that separated man from God. 
That was the curtain that, that would represent sin, what is dividing us from God, what is keeping us from God and before God. And of course, you know, you've got, you, you, you've got the, the, the candles, um, the, which is the Holy Spirit and Jesus right out front. But you walk in and he says, he says, um, the, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense. And the golden altar of incense was actually right in front of the curtain. And that would represent the prayers of the people. Now, of course, you've, you actually had the curtain between the prayers of the people and the Ark of the Covenant. So, so there was a block between us and God. And that's what was ripped open when Jesus died in, in the temple. It happened. Um, and he says, this ark contained the gold jar of manna. Okay. This was the bread from heaven. Again, Jesus, the Aaron staff that had budded. And that's the staff that represents the priesthood, which, you know, the holy nation, the church, the priesthood, um, and the jar of manna. So there was three things in the ark of the covenant, the jar of manna, the, the, the Aaron staff and the stone tablets, the word of God, which is Jesus again. So heavy in symbolism that Jesus is, that God is planting in their hearts all these symbolic things that items that represent something that will come to fruition, that will come to life and make all the difference later on. But for now, there's a system set up and, and, and what he's basically showing us is how all of these things that were so sacred, and they were very sacred, very holy, you know, only once a year can the high priest go into the Holy of Holies, the day, the day of atonement, the Yom Kippur. He can go in and make the, the, the sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is, this is Holy of Holies, um, sacred as can be. And, and, you know, we have the challenge that, that we don't, we, we're not good at sacred anymore because we don't really consider anything sacred anymore. I mean, sadly to say, it's a sad commentary on our society is that nothing is sacred. Once upon a time, there were things that were sacred. For Really, for thousands of years, there were things that people held sacred that you don't touch, you don't joke about it, you don't take it lightly, you certainly don't slander it or anything like that. Things of God were sacred. People, you just didn't, you didn't ever make fun of God or, or things of God or the, or the nature of God. Um, and unfortunately that has by most, most of society is, it just doesn't recognize those things anymore. And in fact, society loves to poke at God and make fun of religion, make fun of spirituality, make fun of church, make fun of everything. And, and we don't understand sacred like they did. I mean, for them, sacred was life and death. You know, and they understood if, if you're not a Levite and you walk into the Holy of Holies, you're dead. I mean, you just die. And that's what, it is what would happen. So, I mean, you remember that when they were carrying the ark and the ox stumbled and the guy reached out to touch it and he died on the spot. I mean, he was reaching out to touch it to keep it from falling on the ground. I mean, there were good reasons. But what God had commanded is sacred. And what he had set up with this ark was sacred. You don't touch it, no matter what. So, and, and it can seem unfair, again, strange to our ears, because we're not used to things being sacred. 
but they are. Certain things are sacred and they're still sacred today. And the things that these, that these items represent are sacred today. The church, the Holy Spirit, the, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the, the prayers of the saints. These things are all sacred before the Lord. So he says, he says, this ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Remember the three items that go, that are in the ark, the, the ark of God. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot dis- discuss these things in detail now. So he doesn't, he, I mean, it's a, it's just a quick overview basically. And he's not going into detail about it because why? Well, because every Jew knew this. Every Jew knew what it was all about. It would be like, I think, um, I think John wrote in our book, it would be like explaining soccer to a bunch of people in Mexico City or in Europe, you know, trying to tell them, okay, this is how a soccer field's laid out. You, you don't need to. They, they know. You can remind them, say, well, you know, you know that circle in the middle of the field and, and you know, the, the, the penalty line in front of the, the, the goalie and you know, you know, they would know what that is exactly. And you could mention it and they would know. So he's mentioning these things. He says in verse six, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that the, the, the sins that people had committed in ignorance. This is very important that I, I'm just going to point this out. This is not his point, but it's so, so once a year, the high priest could go in the day of Yom Kippur and sprinkle blood, um, which was the sacrifice of life for the sins of the people, which sins, the sins that were committed out of ignorance, not the deliberate sins, but the ignorant sins, the things that we didn't realize we did, the things that we did that we later realized were wrong or we stumbled into. So not all sins, even, even, even on Yom Kippur, even in the day of atonement, the Holy Spirit was showing by this, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. As long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So they were limited in what they could do. All of this was ceremony. So it was ceremonial. It wasn't the real thing. It was ceremony. It was like when you go through a wedding, that's a ceremony. It's something that symbolizes and it's full. A wedding is full of symbolism, right? The purity of the white dress, the, the ring that is love that never ends. The people love to do the sand of the two different people becoming one or the lighting the candle, two candles light. All of it is symbolism that represents what represents what is actually happening, what is actually happening. So all of these things were the symbolism. They were the ceremony. They weren't the actual thing. They were the ceremony of the thing. They had some effect, but not all effect. In other words, they, they did remove the sins of the ignorance, but they did not remove the sins that we do purposefully, deliberately. They don't remove those sins. 
So you couldn't, uh, he says, he says, um, external regulations applying until the, no, um, being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Your conscience wasn't clear because not all your sins were forgiven. It was, it is a, a ceremonial system, not the actual thing. The actual thing of having all your sins washed away by the blood doesn't happen until Jesus comes and offers his blood. So it's limited. That's what he means by it's, it's obsolete. It's, it's not, it's not perfect. It's found wanting this system. And it's not because Jesus or because God set up something that wasn't going to work. It's because he set up something that would lead to what does work. That would be kind of like the stepping stone. So we have the tabernacle, then we have the temple, and then we have the actual Jesus. Remember Jesus said, I destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body, right? And of course they all take it that he's threatening to blow up the temple or something to tear it down. So he says, he says, being offered, the gifts being offered, the sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink, various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Okay. So they, they, they make it so that they could approach God so that they could be God's people. They clean you on the outside, but they don't clean you on the inside. Basically is what he's saying. So, so that, you know, you could, it's, it think of it as like, you're just soaked in mud, but you can't go to this ballroom. You can't go to the King's palace soaked and covered in mud. So what do these ceremonies do? They, 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 they put you in really nice clothes and comb your hair and make you look nice. So you, you can go to the, to the palace, but they don't really clean you on the inside. You're not scrubbed under that nice suit and under that that nice jacket, you're still dirty. You're still, you still got the grime on you of your sin. That will only come out by a perfect sacrifice, not the sacrifice of goat and sheep, but the perfect sacrifice of the son of God. That's what will pay all the sins. And he'll get into, he gets into that even more. He says, but verse 11, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. So the tabernacle and, and the temple included. And I just have to say it again. It's still fascinating. I've heard a lot of different explanations. Why does he focus on the tabernacle? Why not the temple? Why does he, why does he, I, I really don't know. And I, and none of the answers that I have seen really satisfy me or to make me think, oh, that's it. Um, it's, it's one of those fascinating things. It's one of my questions when, you know, Lord willing, I get to heaven. I want to ask why, why did the writer of Hebrews focus on the tabernacle and not on the temple? You know, some of the ideas are, well, because the temple was about to be destroyed. They didn't want people thinking about the temple. Um, they didn't want to talk about the temple because Jesus was the new temple. And so they just jumped right back to the tabernacle. Those are all possibilities, but they don't seem that strong to me. They don't seem like, oh yeah, that's it. Maybe, maybe there's something else I, we don't know yet, you know, that, that causes him to focus on the tabernacle and not the temple. But he makes the argument that, that, um, when Jesus came 
as the high priest of the good things that are now already here. You know, he's talking to disciples of Jesus and, and people who already have been washed with the blood of Jesus. He says, he went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, not to say part of the, that is not part of creation. In other words, all these things were built by humans, but the real temple is of God. The real temple is the body of Christ. The real temple is the church, the holy church of Jesus. That's the real temple. That's really what we're doing here. And he says, um, that's what Jesus Christ says. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So the high priest would come in and pay for the sins of ignorance once a year. He comes in, he pays for all sin forever. You know, I mean, would you rather have your sins forgiven in part once a year or once and for all completely? Obviously, this is a much greater sacrifice. This is a huge sacrifice. This means everything, you know, and sacrifices. Obviously, there's small sacrifices. There's large sacrifices. Always there's sacrifices. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the impact. There is no greater sacrifice than the Son of God, than Jesus. He is the greatest sacrifice. And it says, you know, we're not talking about the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonial, unclean, sanctifying, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. How much more the blood of Jesus is going to have an impact on us, is going to clean us from top to bottom so that we can have a clear conscience and serve God so that we can be the royal priesthood. We can be the holy nation. We can be the people who serve God with a clear conscience. That's awesome. I mean, there's, there's no greater price that can be paid. The highest price that could be paid was paid so that we can have a clear conscience and we can, and we can change and live in holiness and we can serve the living God without fear, without worry that we don't, we're unmerited or because why? Because, and again, remember on the covenant on the ark was the mercy seat where the spirit of God would rest. So we get access to God and we receive God's mercy in reality. Not just in ceremony. He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And he goes back to the covenant again, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance that he had now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from their, from the sins committed under the first covenant you know that 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 Jesus's blood applies to all that 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 even the sins under the first covenant are forgiven through Jesus's blood that we are all we all have access to that you know and and you don't have to be Jewish you don't have to be um you don't have to be a Levi you don't have to be of the high priest family everybody gets this 
Every single person gets this. And he says, um, and, and, you know, you can also look, see that the, he talks about the, the blood of lambs, the blood of, of goats, the blood of bulls, these different bloods representing the different people that are out there. This is not just for the Jews. This is for everyone, for Gentile and Jew. And it says in verse 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Okay, you remember I told you the difference in suntheke and diake, diatheke, the, the difference in the, in the different kinds of uh, contracts, the different kinds of wills that we come across. And uh, I forget where we read this. We read this in, I think, beginning in chapter 8. The difference in suntheke, suntheke and diatheke. You know, one is a contract, two living parties. One is like a will. Uh, when I die, this is what you get. And of course, because this covenant comes into place when Jesus dies, it's a will, basically. This is what he wills to us. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So the, the new covenant, you know, the, the old covenant is put into effect with the blood of the, 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 the lambs, the, the, the calves, the, the, the goats, the, the blood that the high priest would sprinkle. But the new covenant starts when Jesus' blood is shed. And that's when everything becomes brand new. Everything changes. And the new covenant is ushered in. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremony. So everything got sprinkled with blood. Everything did. Because blood sanctifies everything. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, that's a big statement right there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, blood was required. You know, the Passover, the blood of the lamb over the door. The sacrifice in in Yom Kippur, the blood for the ignorance of the people. The, to sanctify everything, the sprinkling of the blood, all for the forgiveness, all so that even in a ceremonial outward way, they could become the people of God. For us, in a much deeper and real way, we enter in this covenant with God, into this contract with God by the death of Jesus. It applies to us and everything is forgiven once and for all. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. All the things that happen on earth, the tabernacle, the temple, everything, they're just earth, they're flesh, man-made. They're, 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 they only get so far versus what is in heaven, which is forever, which applies to heaven, applies to eternity applies to all creation. For Christ did not enter sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. 
He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. So Jesus doesn't have to keep coming back and doing this like the high priest did. Every year he had to come back. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't sprinkle something else's blood. He sprinkled his own blood. He sacrificed himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Okay? Ends very powerfully. He says, he says, he says that, um, all people are destined to die once. I'm sorry, there is no reincarnation. You die once. You get one shot at this. We'd like to think we get multiple shots. It would be nice, you know, especially in the age of, of video games, we all like to think we could just die and start over. Or we could have four lives or something like that. But I'm sorry, you get one life and then game over. And that's it. That's it. He says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. What happens immediately? We face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Not He died for all of us. But the reality is, not everybody's gonna, not everybody's gonna come to Jesus. So they, many people will reject his sacrifice. Many will accept it. And many will become disciples of Jesus. And so that's why he says to take away the sins of many, not everybody, because not everybody's going to come. And he will appear a second time. Okay. And he's stating this emphatically. He's going to be back. Don't worry. He'll be back a second time, not to bear sin. Next time he comes back, there's a difference between these visits. The first one, he comes lowly, meek, humble, born probably in a cave where you sheltered animals, put in a trough. That's, that's a, a hole carved in a rock where you water, you put water for the animals. That was his crib. Fleeing, he was a refugee to Egypt because he was being hunted down. His parents were poor. His mother was a little unwed teenager. And I mean, he comes in about as meek as you can come. The next time he comes, there ain't going to be anything meek. <laughs> I mean, he's still meek at heart, but he's going to come in power and glory, riding the white horse with Lord of Lords on his thigh and the flaming, uh, the, what is it? A, a bow and arrow. I think he's carrying and, and I mean, with a crown and the whole thing. It's going to be huge and powerful. Same Jesus with an entirely different purpose to gather his people and give us his salvation. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty great. Give who? Those who are waiting for him. Who's waiting for him? His people. We're waiting for him. We're waiting for him. Now I know we don't think about it much, 
When we got up this morning, we should look out the window and see if he's coming. When we drive down and you see something in the sky, look, is it Jesus? And he's like, well, nobody's that much waiting for him. There's a time in the church where people weren't going to work and they weren't going to school because they thought he was going to come. That's when, you know, Paul says this little thing about whoever does not work should not eat. You know, the Bible says, the man, uh, I forget exactly how he says it, but the Bible says, uh, if, if you don't work, you don't eat. And of course, he's quoting the Old Testament. But the point being that people were thinking, I'm just going to sit around and wait for Jesus. We, we, we don't know, right? And, and Jesus' command is just to be ready. Be ready. Whenever it is, be ready. Live your life ready for Jesus to come back. And that's something that I think we need to, we need to make sure we're doing. And to make sure that we, um, that's why he says, don't say you're going to do this next year and do that year next year. Say, Lord willing, I will do this or I will do that. Because we don't know what God's going to, when, when Jesus is going to come back. But we do know this. He says, everyone's going to die. Get one life. Everyone dies. Everyone faces judgment. And the next time we see Jesus, he's coming back to take us home. So. Those are good thoughts, and uh, we'll stop right there. God bless you. You've just listened to the Metro LA Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com.